Some of you may be thinking, man, more than half the time we've been in this room together, we've just been praying. And I like the way one of my pastor friends put it, we should pray so much in our churches that lost people get bored. Uh, That's actually why we come, because God's the center of attention. And with that in mind, I invite you to 1 Timothy, uh, pardon me, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Last Sunday, we concluded our sermon series through 1 Timothy, and today we begin 2 Timothy. It's about halfway through the New Testament, so if you just open to the middle and find Mark, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just keep going uh, about halfway to the end from there, and you'll find 2 Timothy. It's a power-packed little letter, four chapters long. It's the last words, inspired words, that the Holy Spirit allowed the Apostle Paul to write before he was martyred for his faith. And just as we began our first Timothy sermon series on January the 29th of this year by reading that entire letter, we're going to do the same thing today in our second Timothy series. We'll read all four chapters. I've read through it aloud several times this week. It's taken me between 10 minutes and 40 seconds and 11 minutes. I can assure you The next 11 minutes of this sermon will be the best minutes of this sermon. As I read and you follow along, I trust that you'll see more clearly how things fit together in these four chapters, and I encourage you to try to carefully listen for the flow of the letter. What is the main point? What are the various themes? How do they connect to one another? Or does a theme resurface again later? As you listen to me read this book in one sitting, you're going to be experiencing the same thing that the church at Ephesus experienced about 2,000 years ago when Timothy first received this letter. You can follow along in your Bible and whatever translation you have. I'll try to periodically say what verse I'm at. Or you can follow along in the same translation I'm using by directing your attention to the monitors behind me. I'm going to give you just a brief moment of silence before I begin reading to pray again, but for you privately to ask the Holy Spirit to incline your ear to the voice of God. You pray privately, and then I'll begin our reading. Please answer all God-honoring prayers. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, The way my forefathers did is I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you. Even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel 
according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive the share of his crops. Verse 7, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Verse 14, remember, uh, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Verse 19, nevertheless... The firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there's not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware. Some to honor, some to dishonor. Therefore, 
If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Chapter 3. But I realize this, uh, pardon me, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. Verse 6, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Jonas's and Jambres's folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, you, however, Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
Verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me, gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service, but Tychicus I've, left it, I've sent to Ephesus. Verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. That's the word of the God of the universe. So what stood out to you? What did you see? What did you hear? What were the themes? What would you say under spirit inspiration was the Apostle Paul's primary purpose in writing this letter to his beloved son in the Lord? Well, Lord willing, between today and October the 22nd, 16 sermons, we want to wring out as much from these sentences as God will allow us to enjoy. We want to delve into the gospel depths of this Christ-besotted letter. I encourage you to be reading and rereading and praying through this letter as kindling for your souls so that you and I can gain maximum profit from our Lord's Day worship gatherings as we hear various brothers unpack to us what God intends for us to hear. Before I give just a very small meditation on verses 1 and 2 of the first chapter, I want to give you a framework for the whole book. It was written somewhere in the mid-60s, 64, 65 A.D., about 30 years after Jesus died on the cross. Paul was in his second and final imprisonment in Rome, waiting to be martyred. History tells us he would have his head cut off by Nero. There he is, Paul, in his jail cell, probably a dungeon, a hole in the ground beneath the prison. What's he doing? Probably by candlelight, because there were no windows, he's scratching out this final letter to Timothy. Nero, for all Paul knows, may have already given the orders to have his head lopped off. 
Either way, Paul definitely knew his time was short. He said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. His race was over. And it was imperative in his mind and heart. The mind and heart of a man, I remind you, who for the past about 30 years had fearlessly preached the gospel in dozens of cities and enclaves throughout the Jewish and Gentile, all the known world. He had seen people saved. He had seen God the Holy Spirit plant churches in Jesus' name. And it was imperative in his last hours to stir up the next generation to do it again. And 2,000 years later, we're sitting in a room in Memphis, Tennessee, doing it again. The main theme of the book, twofold. Persecution is certain. False teachers will increase. And as a result of those two things, though many have fallen away who appeared to be true Christians, gospel perseverance is mandatory for all God's children. I'll say again in short, the main theme, gospel perseverance is mandatory for all God's children. Don't misunderstand that main point. Persecution's on its way. False teachers will rise and many have fallen away who we thought were the real deal. There's a bunch of sub-themes that are threaded throughout this letter. According to chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, suffering is a normal part of the Christian experience. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus suffered. Chapter 2, verse 9, Paul suffered. Chapter 2, verse 3, Christian workers suffer. In chapter 3, verse 12, anybody who ever wants to be godly will suffer. According to chapter 2 and 4, though we suffer, perseverance is by God's grace how Christians are commanded to respond. Chapter 2, verse 1, remain strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 5, when many around us increasingly choose ear-tickling preachers, we are to to devote ourselves to the truth and endure hardship. Another theme, according to chapter 1 and 2, endurance part of our perseverance, is empowered by the gospel, not by our own willpower. Chapter 1, verse 9, we are saved to all eternity according to God's purpose by the grace that was given to us in Christ from forever. Chapter 2, verse 9, even if we are in prison, God's word is never put in shackles. Another sub-theme, according to chapter 2, 3, and 4, salvation is taught in and endurance is fueled by the written Word of God, the Scriptures. Chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, pardon me, chapter 2, verse 15. We must accurately handle the Word of God. Chapter 3, verse 15 to 17. God's Word leads us to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, what the whole book is about. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Pastors, therefore, must stand up unapologetically, unashamedly, boldly in the presence of God in Christ Jesus and preach God's Word in season and out of season. Another sub-theme in chapter 2, 3, and 4. Undeniable proof that a person is not a true Christian, I'll say it again, undeniable proof that a person is not a true Christian is made manifest by their failure to persevere. 
Chapter 2, verse 12, if you deny the Lord, he'll deny you. Chapter 2, verse 19, embracing wickedness reveals you are not known by God as his beloved child. Chapter 3, verse 14, continuing in the truth of God's word proves you're not an evil imposter, 3.13. Chapter 4, verse 10, if you think anybody can love the world and follow Jesus at the same time, take a good long look at Demas and check your own heart. Final sub-theme, according to chapter 2, 3, and 4, false teaching is deadly and it must be dealt with firmly. Chapter 2, false teaching will lead you to be ungodly. It will spread in a church like gangrene. It'll kill everybody. If you don't believe me, take a good long look at guys like Hymenaeus and Philetus. Chapter 2, verse 23, lies about God produce quarrels in the church. Truth unites, lies divide. Chapter 3, verse 6, older, weaker women will be severely damaged by false teachers. In chapter 4, verse 3, false teaching is not going to go away. In fact, increasing numbers of churchgoers will, quote, reject sound doctrine, quote, in accord with their own desires, and will prefer, quote, ear-tickling talks from the pulpit. Those are some of the th sub-themes. In this letter, Paul urged Timothy to try to visit him before winter. Of course, winter is when the bone-chilling cold would set into that dungeon cell and would undoubtedly limit Paul's ability to focus his mind's attention and his heart's affection on Jesus through God's Word written. So, I love this sentence. Oh yeah, Timothy, please come before winter. And when you come, bring the cloak. And when you come, Bring me the books. And when you come, especially bring me the parchment. This man wanted God's word in his jail cell because he knew that for him to make it to the end, he needed the book. For the next 16 sermons, between today and October 22nd, Lord willing, we are going to try to wring out as much profit for our souls from this book as we can. And for today, I simply want to draw your awareness to the first two verses. What happens when Christians greet each other? What we see in verses 1 and 2 is that when two of God's children connect with one another in a greeting, one who is totally surrendered to Christ is talking to a person who is totally saturated with Christ. Let your eyes fall again on chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me again? Father, through these two verses, would you produce in us a full surrender to Jesus, and would you saturate our lives with Jesus? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I said verse 1 is about a life surrendered to Christ, and verse 2 is about a life saturated with Christ. Let's look at them one at a time. Verse 1, a life surrendered to Christ. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. There are three things that we see in verse 1 about a life that is fully surrendered to Christ. Somebody who has surrendered to Jesus 
means that it makes you a new person, gives you a new purpose, and leads you to never-ending joy. Look, it makes you a new person. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. What a glorious opening word. It's not just a word, it's a name. Paul, this is a new person. This is a man who at the very end of his life, right before he dies for his faith, is referring to himself, not by his old name, but by his new name. The first few decades of his life, this man was known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He was a renowned Bible student and Bible teacher. He was zealous for his religion. He was vehemently opposed to Jesus and his church, and he was trying to stamp out Christianity in the known world. That is, until he met the risen Jesus, and he was saved. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and on that Damascus road, he met the risen Christ. Since then, he only knew himself in relationship to Christ. When he thought about himself, he thought about himself in relationship to Jesus, and that comes through in the name that he writes at the opening of this book. He was no longer the old man. That man died. He's now a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. His identity, his self-understanding is bound up in his relationship to the Son of God and the privilege to serve him. Well, even if you didn't change your name when you became a Christian, that's okay. Do you understand, though, that the gospel makes you a new person? Every Christian's testimony has three parts. Your life before Christ, when and how you came to know Christ as Lord and Savior, your conversion, and your life since Christ. Well, my life uh, includes a name change like Paul. Before I was a Christian, I was known as PJ. My name is Patrick Jordan. Some people still call me PJ. I'm not going to be offended if you do. I don't really like it. I know some people use it because of Pastor Jordan, and they don't even know my name is Patrick Jordan. But the reason I don't like it, although it can be helpful, Ephesians chapter 2, remember, it reminds me of who I was before I was a Christian. For some reason, when I went to college, I said, ah, I'm not going to be my initials, I'm going to be my middle name, and so I introduced myself as Jordan. So I was PJ in high school and before, and I've been Jordan since. But I was also saved my freshman year of college. And when somebody calls me PJ, I know they know that man. When somebody calls me Jordan, I know they know this man. That's what Paul's doing. I'm not Saul. I'm a new man. He's reminding himself and others he's not his own. He belongs to another. Comes out more explicitly in the next phrase, the second consideration. Not only a life fully surrendered to Christ gives you, makes you a new person, but gives you a new purpose. Look at verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. A new purpose. The word apostle means sent out one. One who is sent out. It's also an office given to Paul by Jesus. There are no more apostles today. I don't care what church or person puts the title before or after their name. They are not what Paul was. There are no more apostles. According to the New International Greek Testament commentary, apostle of Jesus Christ indicates Paul's special authority as one who was sent by Christ to act and write on Christ's behalf. You see, when the risen Jesus saved and appointed Paul to his apostolic ministry as the ambassador of Jesus, Paul is now letting Timothy know By way of reminder, no doubt Timothy knew this from the outset, that this is not just a father-son letter. 
Paul is putting this phrase in this letter right at the beginning so that Timothy will register what Paul is intending. That is, this is a God-ordained role. I don't know if Paul ever wrote Timothy other letters. Hey, before you come home, stop at the store and get these groceries. If so, those are not inspired. This is inspired. And Paul's telling Timothy this is a different kind of book. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. But notice also in his new purpose, he's not only sent out as Jesus' apostle, that is according to the will of God. His new purpose, as somebody fully surrendered to God, he understands himself only in relationship to God's prerogative. Oh, to live like this. This is a man who knows himself to be done with himself. His will is no longer in the equation. His preference, his prerogatives, his agenda, his aspirations, his goals are done. There is one controlling motive in the heart of this man. What will bring pleasure to my God? What is his will? What does he want? My answer is yes. He can now tell me what to do. Have you resigned your entire self? Body, mind, and soul to God? Do you know this blessed experience? Are you living instead in the frustrating cycle of your own will paul can even so much as say he cannot even so much as say hello to timothy without reminding himself and his son in the lord i belong to another my purpose is to serve his good pleasure and i'm doing his bidding even as i talk to you so I said, somebody surrendered to Christ is a new person, Paul instead of Saul, has a new purpose, apostle of Christ by the will of God, but third and finally under our first point, leads to never-ending joy. Look at the end of verse 1. Apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Now this phrase is way more glorious than I could unpack in a thousand sermons. The promise of life in Christ Jesus. So one of my sermon applications is this. If you know what that sentence means, would you please come nestle up to me 10 trillion years from now and talk to me about this? Promise of life in Christ Jesus. Before Paul gets into the details of his letter, he insists that we not miss the forest for the trees. Dear ones, hear me. Apart from Christ, you have no life. There's a stark difference between living and existing. And the Bible says that if you are not in Christ, you are actually dead. You're the walking dead. The Scriptures teach that you're spiritually dead until by faith you are united to Christ Jesus. The electric current of all of God's power comes into your soul when you put your faith in Jesus, which is the faith he gives you to put in him. And then he promises something to you, life eternal, that we would never perish but have everlasting life. That's his promise. That's why I said to Enrique, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and, and, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you, including eternal life. And he said, yes. That's what Paul's talking about. 
It's not life near Jesus. It's definitely not life apart from Jesus. If you look at that little phrase, it's so carefully worded. It's life in Christ Jesus. You can have the promise of life for eternity if you will only have it in Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Magician's Nephew about the temptation to worship other Christians. And you may think, that's absurd, because I know a lot of Christians, I'm not tempted to worship any of them. Touche. He's not talking about here, he's talking about there. C.S. Lewis basically said, if you could see a glorified saint, somebody who was enjoying the promise of life in Christ Jesus to the max in heaven, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them because you've never, according to Lewis, seen anything, quote, more dazzling, more radiant, more immortal, more pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as you cannot now even imagine. And the only reason you will not worship other Christians in heaven is because there will be one who outshines them all. The promise of life in Christ Jesus. This is what Christianity is all about. Paul can't even say hello. There's no commands in verse 1. It's simply, Jesus is wonderful. If there's no promise of life in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15 says very clearly, do not become a Christian. If there's no heaven, stop following Jesus. If we hope in him in this life only, he's not worth knowing, following, or obeying. But the promise of the age to come, if these promises are true and beloved, they are true. Jesus got up from the dead to validate the truthfulness of all of God's promises. God put it this way, all the promises of God are yes in him because he got up from the dead. Then because these promises are true, you and I, 1 John 3, 3, will be like him when we see him. The promise of life in Christ Jesus. So I said first, a life fully surrendered to Jesus. What does it look like? It makes you a new person, gives you a new purpose, and leads you to never-ending joy. That's a life fully surrendered to Jesus. Well, what's a life fully saturated by Jesus look like? That's verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. There's two things about this verse that explain to us what a life saturated with Christ looks like. What does it look like to abide in Jesus? A life saturated with Christ has two things. Number one, you get a new family. And number two, you grow with necessary fuel. First, you are given a new family. Being saturated in Christ gives you a new family. Look at verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved son. It could be my beloved child, however yours renders it. My beloved son. I don't know how non-Christians do it. I mean, I once was one and I tried to do it and it wasn't very successful. But I'm serious, I don't know how they do it. I mean, today we prayed in our service for a man whose dad is almost definitely going to die within two weeks. That dad does not know Jesus. God, please change that. 
Another one of our members went to visit his mom, who's in very perilous situations. My own mom is walking through a number of challenges. Got a family leaving tomorrow to go have a very challenging visit and try to figure out which way is up. One of our sisters was on her way to church last Sunday, three miles from here. She had a wreck, hit a tree. God graciously preserved her life. I'm serious. I do not know how non-Christians do it. Where do you stand? Like, what rock are you on? Are you just in a constant free fall? Just plummeting through the universe? I don't know how non-Christians make it through the gauntlet of this life. But I do know this. They are missing out on one of the most important aspects of life on earth. The Christian family. If you are saturated with Jesus, I know something about you. I'll say it another way. Show me a man saturated with Jesus and I will show you a man who has given his life to the church Jesus loves. Fully surrendered to Christ, fully saturated in Christ, will be seen most visibly, measurably, obviously. Even lost people would be able to detect this about us by our being engrafted into the family of Christ, my beloved son. The Lord Jesus said very clearly, all men, not just Christian men, all men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. If you're saturated with Jesus, you have that. Timothy, my beloved son, Paul has that. Walking with Jesus does not only command you to love his people, that's definitely true, but also thrills you to love his people. If somebody says, John wrote, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from God, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That's what Paul's literally doing. And he's saying Timothy is a person like that as well. Paul loved Timothy as his own son. So first... A life saturated with Christ gives you a new family. Paul was not biologically related to Timothy. They didn't come from the same human family tree. Nevertheless, he embraced him as his son. Oh, for healthy, Jesus-saturated relationships in this church. Nobody here gets to take the Lord's Supper by themselves. If you do, you're actually not paying attention to the instructions. I hope you don't. Nobody gets to take the Lord's Supper alone, and we actually discourage single households from taking it by themselves. We're not a family of families. We're a family. And every week, you just get with a different little subset of your crazy cousins and take the Lord's Supper together, remembering our older brother who unites us in love. A life saturated with Christ gives you a new family and finally grows you with the necessary fuel Verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a rare threefold designation from Paul, grace, mercy, and peace. Sometimes he says grace to you, sometimes grace and peace to you, but here it's grace, mercy, and peace. He does it only one other time, that's in 1 Timothy. These three expressions of the Lord's love are the fuel that we must have to honor him. If you don't have grace, mercy, or peace, you cannot honor God. They come from him, they are required by him, and they are also the guaranteed fuel for all who are saturated in his son. 
I want you to notice the source is twofold, not one. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. We're seeing unity in the Trinity and the Trinity acting in unity, meaning what the Father gives, the Son also gives. They are both equally cited as the source, not for the graces and the mercies and the multiple pieces, but grace, mercy, peace all come from God the Father and from God the Son, and they're both cited individually as the source. The point is this. If this doesn't make you happy to be a Christian, you have a gigantic hole in the bottom of your spiritual bucket. All of God, all of the Father, all of the Son, and because the Holy Spirit inspired the sentence, we can also say the Holy Spirit who wrote these words is engaged in the welfare of His children. Our job is to remain connected to the vine. Just stay plugged up to Christ. Just abide in Jesus and the supply that we must have will be amply lavished upon us, full nutrition so that we can honor God with our entire life. Is your life so saturated in Christ? Are you plugged into the vine of Jesus? Would you say that without fail, you have found grace, mercy, and peace flowing into your life continually? What does grace do? Grace is God's power to enable you to please Him. What does mercy do? Mercy is God's provision to cover your sin against Him. What is peace? Peace is God's pleasure to ensure your fellowship with Him. So you get power to please Him, provision to wipe away your sin, and happiness to live in fellowship with Him. Grace, mercy, peace. Positively, the necessary fuel for a God-honoring life and more is available to all who will saturate their souls in the endless fountain of Jesus. Negatively, the necessary fuel is unavailable to all who will not saturate their lives in Jesus. Paul is saying to Timothy, you're one of those Jesus-saturated people. So the application is twofold. Look to the cross of Christ and look to the throne of Christ. The cross, his sufferings on earth. Look to the cross of Christ where he died to save us. And if you look to the cross of Christ and you understand who it is that's there dying for you and why he's doing so in love unspeakable, and the end for which he did it so that you could be reconciled to God in happy fellowship forever? Something you never could have procured on your own, and even if you tried, you would have made the predicament worse. Look to the cross of Christ, and if you do, I promise this will happen. You will be a verse one person. Surrender. New person. Surrender to the love of Jesus as you look to the cross of Jesus. Don't clean yourself up to come to Him. Just bring you and all your mess to Him and He'll do the work. Look to the cross of Christ. And second, look to the throne of Christ. He did die, but He's not still dead. Don't feel sorry for Him that He died. Do somersaults down the interstate because He died. Be happy that He died. He rose again. He's on the throne. He reigns over us. Therefore, 
You don't have to reminisce about an old dead person whose bones are in a cave. You can have a vital living love relationship with the king of the universe and be saturated with his never-ending supply of grace, mercy, peace. Look to the cross and surrender to his love. Look to the throne and be saturated with his life. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. That's somebody surrendered to him. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's somebody saturated with Jesus. Make us like that, Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would give us grace, mercy, and peace from Jesus Christ, that we would be fully surrendered to Jesus and constantly saturated by Jesus. Do it, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.